0: rivalries (laughs) exist everywhere in this world. Republicans versus Democrats. That's the rivalry, right? We have in computers, Mac versus PC. Some of you computer geeks and nerds will probably argue about that, which is better. In sports, it's Missouri versus Arkansas. Or is that even a... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying. In the NFL, it's everybody against the Patriots. That's exactly right. In superhero, it's Superman versus Lex Luthor. In the home, it's kids against vegetables. I know you've witnessed that. We still are with a 10-year-old. Yet in the kingdom of God, it's the real kingdom of darkness against and opposing the kingdom of God's beloved son. I hope you figured out that in the realm of God's kingdom, which the enemy is part of that kingdom, right? The rivals aren't equal. It's not even close. Our God will accomplish his purpose in this world and nothing will stop it. Our God is omnipotent in his power. He will accomplish his purpose. And he told the disciples in Acts eight. That they would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God has the ability to get it done. And He will. Nothing will ever stop gospel advance, no matter how difficult the opposition is. In this section today, we're going to see the utter folly of an earthly king trying to stand up against the king of kings. Acts 13, we're going to see the church take a gigantic step in world missions in the world mission accomplished for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to study that starting next Sunday morning, Acts 13, 1 through 5. Before that, however, Luke wants to share with us, before this major advancement, a door-opening incredible work that's found in Acts 13, Luke reminds us that the kingdom doesn't advance without cost. That it does cost us. Yet when we face... The difficulties, we need to have unshakable assurance and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ will win. That's what we learn from this passage. So King Herod's going to launch a public assault against the leadership of the church. He's going to have James killed. He's going to have Peter imprisoned. But, the, but ultimately the enemy cannot stop the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Let me break this up for you in two sections. First, we're going to talk about the fact that Christians in every age will face opposition if they're seeking to advance Christ's kingdom or the gospel of Jesus Christ. In every age, we're going to face opposition. The second division in the sermon beginning in verse uh, verse 6 is going to be the fact that the king's mission is unstoppable. Can't you take those two things out of here this morning? The fact that all of those who will desire to live godly, according to Peter, will face persecution and suffer. When we seek to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, you will have opposition. And secondly, you need to remember that the king's kingdom is unstoppable. God will advance His kingdom. So, beginning in chapter 12, we're going to talk about opposition and gospel advance. And believe it or not, your pastor is going to preach all the way through verse chapter 12, 25 verses. Are you ready? You better listen fast. First five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Folks, this is not a playground right here, is it? This is serious. He killed James, the brother of John, remember the sons of thunder, James and John, with the sword. In all likelihood, this means beheaded. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending... After the Passover, to bring him out to the people, so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So, division one. Christians from every age will face opposition if seeking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in this juncture, we meet a fellow named Herod. Have you ever met some Herods before? As a matter of fact, the Bible is full of them, and you can get... Thoroughly confused when you start trying to figure out who's who. But this is Herod Agrippa the I. Now, if you'll remember, his grandfather was Herod the Great, who massacred all the babies in Bethlehem at the appearance of the Magi. I think you remember the story. We talked about that during the Advent season. The Herodian dynasty... Was, is where you get the name Herod. Therefore, every king after that would be named Herod. So you think about the Herodian dynasty. What were these people known for? Attacking Christ. There is no question about that. Uh, Herod Antipas would be the uncle of Agrippa I, and he had John the Baptist beheaded in a moment of sexual arousal. Here in Acts 12, we read of Agrippa the I. When we get to Acts 25... And 26, chapters 25 and 6, we're going to be dealing with Agrippa II, which will be the son of Agrippa I. Now, as a child, Agrippa I was sent off to Rome, and he was reared among Roman aristocracy. The dude was a playboy. Got in a lot of debt, a lot of trouble, got in over his head, and actually had to go off to Idumea, which, you know, Herod, Idumean. Uh, We know that from their dynasty, but he had to go off there. And in 36 AD, he returned to Rome, but then he offended Tiberius, the emperor. And guess what happens to him? He gets thrown into the slammer. This guy eventually will get out when the next ruling person comes into position. And because he had so many uh, aristocracy friendships, he was able to manipulate the system. You know, sometimes when you grow up with friends in high places, they end up helping you, right? And that's exactly what happens in the case of Agrippa I because one of his classmates was Claudius who becomes the emperor of Rome. And Claudius gives Herod Agrippa the territory which included Judea and Samaria and actually ended up giving him all the territory that Herod the Great, his grandfather, had before him. This dude was a political chameleon. Before the Rome, before Rome, he was all Rome. Before the Jews, he was all Jewish. And so when he he was around the Jews, he sought to find favor all the time. He was a man pleaser, he was a glory seeker, and he was a Christ hater. And so Luke's report of this man is perfectly documented in extra-biblical material. Uh, My son's a political science major and history, and I know he studied this because he's agreeing with me here, but there's extra biblical material that tells us about these people. And Eusebius gives us tons of information. Now that's not Bible, that's a historian. You know, the world takes historians literally, but they don't want to believe the Bible. I want to remind you that everything the Bible touches on is true. Every aspect of it. And so we're introduced to this person, and... Do you think Agrippa I would have been affiliated or familiar with Jesus Christ? Well, you better believe it because Herod Antipas would have been the one over Jesus Christ mock trial. His uncle. So, there's no question he has all this information. And his goal is to go down to Jerusalem and persecute believers in order to win the favor of the Jews. Remember, Jews are religious people. But without Christ, they're lost. Are y'all listening? It's one thing to be religious, but you can be religious and on your way to hell. Most of the people in the Bible were saved out of religion. And so here the Jewish people, we think they're monotheistic. They, they love God. They don't love Jesus. And they haven't figured out that He is God, right? Jesus came into His own and His own received Him not. And so here are the Jews that are excited That Herod would go after James and kill him. He's beheaded by the sword. Remember, James and John were called the sons of thunder. And Jesus talks to them in Mark 10. When they say to him, Lord... Though Jesus says to them, what would you have me do for you? Here's humanity. Lord, would you mind if I get to sit on your right side and John on your left? Do y'all remember that? They're jockeying for position... And Jesus says, you don't know what I'm about to drink. You don't know the baptism I'm about to get. Which he was speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he makes this allusion to them, uh, saying to them, but you are going to drink of it. So we think and we understand from this particular text of Scripture that there's no question that Jesus predicted what was going to happen to the Apostle James. What does the Bible say? Well, here it wins all this favor. And then he sets his sights on the most high-profiled believer and leader in that day, whose name was, yes, the Apostle Peter. He goes, he has him arrested, and this is uh, Peter's, at least according to Acts, the third time that Peter's found himself in prison. And there's no question that what is Herod's intention? His intention is to have him killed. But what's going on? Just like in the case of Christ, when there was a trumped-up trial, it was a day of unleavened bread, which means the Passover was there. And what do we know about Herod? He's a political chameleon. He doesn't want to upset the Jewish people. He doesn't want to do this dastardly deed on a holy day. So he puts it off. So here is Peter in prison. And Luke tells us that he's flanked by four squads of four soldiers. Now think about this. Here's a, a preacher in jail with that much security. Don't you think they've heard of the fact that this guy's walked out before in chains and they fell off? There's no question. So they put, uh, this is a way of saying maximum security around Peter. Four squads of four soldiers. Pretty tight security. Scholars say that these men were working three-hour shifts. So here we have the tightest security of the day. The intent was going to be, when morning comes, we're going to have this mock trial. And surely he would seek to behead Peter. But as Herod plots in vain, Luke gives us this wonderful contrast in verse 5. Don't you love it? So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now you don't see this in the English. But when you look it up in the Greek, then you understand that this is a... Uh, construction in the Greek that means men day. It's a men day construction. And why is that important? Because usually the writer didn't want to be so wordy to give you exactly how all that meshes. But he's trying to contrast to you how Herod is plotting, but how God is working his work too. And it would, it would be something like this. Therefore, On the one hand, Peter was kept in prison, but while on the other hand, fervent prayer was being made by the church of God for him. In other words, Herod is exerting all the earthly kingdom power that he thinks he has, but the church of God goes to work by getting on their knees. Can we take a lesson from that as a church at First Baptist Ozark? Of how we expect and why we expect our God to work in our midst Luke uses the term fervently only two times in all of his writings. You do know Luke wrote Luke and Acts, two volumes. The only other time he uses the term fervently is to refer to how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So was there some intense activity going on in this home for Peter? They already knew that James was dead. They knew full well what Herod intended to do with Peter... And yet, the church is not wielding a sword. They're on their knees before the God of eternity who controls all things. Hello? Is that not what they're doing? They're praying before God because He controls all things. John Stott says it this way. What could this little community of Jesus in its powerlessness do against the arm might of Rome? Here then were two communities. The world... And the church arrayed against one another, each welding a weapon. The church turned to prayer, which is the only power that the powerless possess. Folks, that is so true. It's convicting to my heart to think about how we just go about the motions, even in ministry, thinking that we don't need to beseech the God of eternity who controls all things. How about in your own personal life? How are you doing in this issue of knowing full well That your major mode of defense is to take the issue directly to the God who controls all things. Whether it's financial or marital, whatever that may be. We learn here that prayer is effectual. It accomplishes the purpose God would have it accomplish. Prayer is the church's weapon. And using it is not being passive. To say to a government that tries to make you conform to its image... That we're just going to pray about this. That's not passive. You do realize that. As a matter of fact, prayer is an act of defiance against opposition. We're not going to listen to what they have to say. We're going to take it to the Lord of glory. In the words of John Piper, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. Have y'all figured out that we're in a war? That when we come here on Sunday morning, it's not just a playground. It's a battleground. When we engage, when we... fly overseas for mission, uh, a mission endeavor, when we're going out into our community, when we're discipling people, when we're doing the work of the ministry, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We have uh, the devil and his minions against us. His principalities. We're at opposition. The church is at war. So we're going to call upon the one who shuts lions' mouths. Amen? We're going to call upon the one who humiliates pharaohs. Right? Have you all read the Bible? He shuts the mouths of lions. He humiliates pharaohs. He breaks chains. He opens prison doors. God knows what's best. And He can control it. His sovereignty is inscrutable. What's that mean? Well, you can't always control or comprehend what God is doing. Why does James die and Peter live? Well, that hurts, doesn't it? Why, why did God allow James to be beheaded? He was an apostle just like Peter, but yet he lets Peter live. We're not told the reasons. However, we do have what's said in, in chapter 10 of Mark: Do you think the church prayed for James? Just as fervently? And yet Peter lived, and James was put to death. Now John, James's brother, will live to be an old man and write five books in the Bible. Not so with James. Sometimes believers suffer terribly. Sometimes God delivers miraculously. Sometimes those who would be great parents can't have children biologically to themselves. Sometimes those who are terrible parents keep on having babies. And we think, what's up with that? God, you opened and closed the womb and you're allowing this to take place. Sometimes God heals in answer to prayer. Sometimes He don't. Earthly Or doesn't. Sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. At least for a time. Correctly in the Bible. Trials are not necessarily telling us that God is displeased with us. But God does call us to trust Him. No matter what the situation is, even when it hurts. He is wise. He knows what is good. He knows what is best. Do you know that God has no problem raising the dead? Do you know that we're going to dwell in heaven with the Lord, in glory, where sin can't touch you, nor suffering. It's coming in the future. And furthermore, God has entered into your suffering like you could never imagine because the Son of God entered into this world and identified with you to the max and took the total indictment of your sin debt upon Himself. You want to talk about suffering? Bearing the sins of the world, that's suffering. But here's the good news, the grave couldn't hold Him. And he resurrected victoriously. God has no problem putting your head back on your shoulders if you lose it with a sword. Are y'all listening? He has the power to raise the dead. He has, no po- he has no problem fixing this situation. Glory is coming. He has no problem putting heads back on. I want to remind you of Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to the word of the Lord. You remember, there's the, there's the hall of faith where these people did these great things, and we listen. But listen to this part of the text. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to better life. Oh, I like that. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. We think about Stephen, don't we? They were sawn in two. Think about Isaiah, possibly. They were killed with the sword, James. They went about in skins of sheeps and goats... Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, check this out, of whom the world was not worthy. The world wasn't worthy of the ones who died for the cause of Christ. So I want to remind you that you're going to receive opposition for the gospel. And it's highly possible that somebody in this building one day could die for the cause of Christ. It's highly possible. As our God begins to work and we begin to go through Acts and we begin to pray with fasting that God will reach the nations, He may raise up the brightest and the best in this congregation. Young people who may not even be listening to this sermon today are paying me any attention. God's going to raise up some of them one day and He's going to send them overseas. And they're going to go to places where it's difficult, where you can die for the cause of Christ. And they very well may die for Him. But Paul said it this way, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Folks, that's what the servants of Jesus Christ have always done. They've been willing to face whatever opposition was necessary, that matter, so that the gospel would advance to the ends of the earth. And I know I'm talking to a congregation that's real comfortable living in Ozark. I know I'm talking to a congregation that's real comfortable with Americanized Christianity. But that's not Bibleized Christianity. There's a major difference. All right, I preached hard on that. Let's move on. Notice I've only gone a little ways, but I'm going to pick up some speed. 6 through 25, let's talk about the king's mission being unstoppable. So we've got opposition on the one hand. Here's the advancement. Now Now, folks, this is supposed to be somewhat humorous. So if you want to laugh, go ahead. Really, if you can't read the Bible and understand there's humor there, then you haven't been reading your Bible. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Talk about confidence in Christ. Bound with two chains, and sentries, or soldiers, before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, patasso. Put that aside in your mind, sticky note, and don't forget it. We're going to return to that word at the end of this narrative. But he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. Notice this is funny because the angel's got to tell him everything to do. I mean, the guy's so fast asleep. The angel's saying, do this, Peter. Now get your coat, man. Get up, right? And the angel said to, to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you. It's like, come on, man, it's cold outside. And follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the one street. That's really what it was called, first street, the one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, meaning John Mark, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So we're backing up to verse 5. As the earthly king is uh, causing his assault, opposition, the church of God was praying, right? And here's where they were praying, in the home of Mary. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing that it was Peter's voice. In her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran back in and reported to Pete that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, in the literal Greek rendering, You're nuts. You've fallen and bumped your head. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is an angel. It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, There was no little disturbance, imagine so, right? Among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. You know, God could have delivered him several days. God could have delivered Peter the day he went into prison. But he waited, and noticed the text, on that day. You know, God's never late, never in a hurry, right? But he's never late. And God was working his wonders to perform. And here we find Peter just quickly chained to two guards. The chains, folks, had to be heavy. I've never been chained. But I'm sure there wasn't like little bitty small chains that we would be accustomed to. They had to be heavy. And look, when they're looking for soldiers, I don't think they're looking for the Woody Allen type. I mean, these are burly guys. Correct? They are. And just consider this for a moment. Heavy chains in between two burly men and Peter's asleep. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Uh, some of you wives can attest to this as you listen to your burly man beside you. I, I really believe that Peter was probably snoring. I mean, glorified imagination. Here he is chained between two burly soldiers and he is snoring. All that discomfort. Understanding what could be happening to him the next day. And he's sawing logs in between two guards. His life is in danger. Direst of straits and circumstances. But here is a man who has full confidence in the Lord of glory. Who shuts the mouths of lions. Right? Right? Who overthrows the Pharaohs? He knows what's going on. One commentator comment, commented on Paul and Peter being thrown in prison. Said Paul sang hymns, Peter went to sleep. Right? You're going to see Paul singing the hymns when you get to Acts 16, so you have to wait. And so he's fast asleep, and the angel of the Lord comes into the room. Light? I'm talking, I, there's no, I, I'm sure the angel didn't have a dimmer switch on the light. I mean, just check this out. Coming into the room, uh, Shekinah glory, light shining, and this dude is still fast asleep. If you turn the light on in my room when I'm asleep, I promise you I'm going to be up and up quickly. I'm not as light of a sleeper as my wife, but I'm a pretty light sleeper. But if you turn the light on in my room, I'm going to be awake. That's not the case at this point. Actually, again, Patasso, the angel has to strike him in his side to get him to start moving. And then begins to give instructions to this droggy apostle Peter who's fast asleep in prison. And again, verse 9 is pretty hilarious. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He saw a vision before, didn't he? You think Peter would said, Okay, Lord, where's the sheet? I know there's another sheet coming down from four corners, like an ark with a bunch of uh, animals in it. There's no question. There's no telling what's going through his mind. But they go to the second gate. They go to the first guard, second guard. And then there's just enormous, imposing, ominous gate. And the Bible says it opens of its own accord. Isn't that awesome? Well, you know God opened the door. And here's Peter standing out on the street. The angel disappears. I don't know if it was a night breeze that blew in his face. But all of a sudden he came to his senses. And he's like, man, this is not a vision. This is actual reality. I'm standing on 1st Street. And the Bible says he heads to to the house of Mary. Who was this Mary? Well, it's John Mark's mother. She would have been Barnabas' cousin, which makes John Mark Barnabas' cousin. It's most likely the place that they went to for Passover meal and for the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Popular place. Some people believe this actually could have been the Jewish... Are the uh, headquarters of the early disciples, apostles working the works of the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, The next part is hilarious. I'm sure Peter's headed out, looking over his shoulder, wondering, hey, are these guys going to wake up and come to their senses and follow me down First Street and catch me? But he stands at the gate of Mary's house, and he begins to knock on the door in the gate. And Rhoda comes, and Rhoda hears Peter's voice, he's probably saying, let me in, let me in. He's probably not saying, let me in the door, right? He's probably not doing that. Why? Because he's, he's quiet a little later in the text, tries to calm them down, but he's probably looking over his shoulder, he's knocking on the door, and Rhoda, in her excitement, she's ecstatic, and instead of opening the door, she returns, she spins on a dime, makes a beeline back into the house, and says, hey, Peter's standing there. And again, Rhoda, you've fallen and bumped your head. But that's not the case at all. We know what's going on. Uh, Then they offer a theological response. Must be Peter's angel. Now, if you read back on angelology, you'll find out that many people in that time frame believed each person had a guardian angel. Don't ask me that because I don't know. I don't know if you have one or not. Some of you need one. No. But the fact is, they believe that that angel could manifest itself in your physical appearance. Some believe that. Some of that's exaggerated. But the fact is, it's Peter's angel. So they, they go theological on uh, Rhoda. And Rhoda, she is persistent, is she not? To say, no, this is Peter. Let's go see. And they all go down, and Peter is knocking at the gate. He is actually fulfilling Matthew 7, 7. Right? Jesus said, keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. Y'all know I'm just trying to be funny. You know, Keep on knocking. So that's exactly what he's doing. He's knocking. He's waiting. And the Bible says that it's kind of the chaos is somewhat escalating. And Peter's trying, trying to quiet them down. Uh, I love Larnell Harris. Uh, I remember when I was, a, I don't know when he wrote this, a long time ago. I was probably 16 or 17 years of age. And Larnell wrote a song called Rhoda, Open the Door. And here's what he says. Rhoda, open the door. Don't turn and walk away. Here is the one you've been praying for, and God answers when you pray. Oh, don't waste the time. Just open the door and find that your answer to your prayer is there. Rhoda, open the door. Listen to this. Are you an effectual fervent prayer, casting your mountains to the sea? Or do you pray like these friends of Peter, not taking God seriously? That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? I used to sing that song riding down the road in my Ford truck. Rhoda opened the door, and it made me think about that. We're we're dealing with a God who answers prayer. And here they are, they've been praying that God would deliver Peter. Now they're shocked that he's standing at the door. Right? God gives the answer, and then we're shocked that God answers prayer and that he's sovereign over situations. So here we have a shift where Peter is now going to be gone. You're going to see him reappear. As, as the Jerusalem council. But he's not going to have the spotlight on him anymore. After this, it's going to be who? It's going to be on the Apostle Paul. And again, verses 18 through 19 are pretty amazing. You know, hyperbole is overstatement for the purpose of effect. Well, this is understatement for the purpose of effect, right? That there's no small stir among the soldiers. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. Then we see the brutality of the way things were in the Roman Empire, when uh, the soldiers, if you let a prisoner go, then you serve the sentence. And obviously we see that he was intended to kill Peter, and then he kills the soldiers. And the soldiers, uh, what did Herod think? Well, these soldiers probably took a bribe. Just paid him off. And Peter paid him off, and they, he got out of prison. And again, as was common in that day, with such violence... Uh, They're killed. Should this passage not remind us of the need to live with joyful confidence in Jesus? I mean, it's a funny story, it's interesting. But how much confidence do we actually live with every single day in our God that He controls all things? Uh, I just think to myself, we ought to believe and trust like children, we ought to pray like children, we ought to go to sleep at night in Jesus like children. We need to laugh like children. We need to trust our Father who is sovereign over all things. He breaks chains. He frees prisoners. He humiliates bullies. We can trust our God. Now, for the sake of time, I'd like to stop right there, but I can't. All right? Because I learned something. Even though 20 through 25 seems to be disconnected, it is vital for you to understand what God is doing with opposition in advance. So listen, real quickly. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. You're like, what in the world? Does that have to do with anything? And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for grain or food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Uh oh. Strike one was Patasso to Peter's side, and that was for deliverance. Strike two was Patasso in the life, and Herod dies. I want to tell you, folks, the same God that can strike you for deliverance is the same God that can strike you for judgment. There's a reason it's in there like that. Potasso. Our God can deliver anybody, anytime, anywhere. But He will also judge the living and the dead one day, and you can take that to the bank. Over the top of every tyrant that opposes God and His church is the title, Payday Someday. It's coming. The Bible says that God struck Herod because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Well, that'll get your attention, won't it? But the word of God increased and multiplied. Y'all see it? Gospel advance and opposition can't stop it. Tyrants of the world can't stop our God. He is absolutely unstoppable. And here's Barnabas and Saul. Remember that Antioch mission? They returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here's the connection. The very God who brings about deliverance to Peter is the very God who brings about judgment upon Herod. Remember Acts 4? They're interceding. And they're praying, and they, they reach back and grab a psalm. And it's Psalm 2. And, they, and it says, why do the nations plot a vain thing against the king? And they're, they're thinking about that. And do you remember what the saints say in Acts chapter 4, 27 through 29? They say, God, look upon their threats. They're not pulling out an earthly sword to kill their opposition. They're asking God the God of eternity, to take care of this situation. And did God not answer? Yes, He answers. Now think about this. When He does His oratory thing, uh, Josephus, in the Antiquities of the Jews, book 19, an extra-biblical scholar named Josephus, tells about this very event. And he says that Herod robes himself in a silver robe, and the sun is shining on him. And man, to the people, it was like, good night. God showed up. And then he starts to talk, and the people are giving him praise and homage. And you know what Josephus says? Josephus says that all of a sudden he's got a sharp pain in his side. And he begins to sweat and hurt. He goes into his chamber, and it takes him five days to die. And he dies an excruciating death from the inside out. Mm. You know, back on James, I failed to tell you this. But Eusebius said that James had a soldier chained to him in prison and James leads that prisoner to Christ and that prisoner dies with James in prison as he's he's beheaded, just like James. That's the power of the gospel, isn't it? Just go and take somebody with you when you go to glory. Right? That's what James did. But in this situation, Josephus says, he even says this, he brought all that glory to himself and Josephus says Perhaps providence ruled the day. Luke says God killed him. God struck him and he was eaten with worms. It took him five days to die. He died an excruciating death. Now, folks, God takes down tyrants that dare raise their hands up against the voice of the Lord. Just think about what Herod did. He's usurping who God is. God won't take that, Right? He he goes against the church of the living God. God will not take that without responding. And so when it looked as if Herod would triumph with all his evil schemes, Peter's released and delivered, and Herod is dead. And to top it all off, God has triumphed over his enemies, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading throughout the world. Did y'all see that note? But the Word of God increased and multiplied. You just can't stop it. Now, folks, we live in a world of tyrants that try to persecute the church of God, but if they do not repent, again, payday someday. You cannot usurp the glory of God, nor stand against His Son, or try to harm His church, and God not take notice. God takes notice. The God who lets some choice servants die is the same God that delivers others. We don't understand that. But I tell you this, at the end of the day, we give God glory because the Word of God advances. Because God is in absolute control. John Piper summarizes this chapter well. Here's what he says. If we stay with Jesus, we win. If we oppose Him, we lose. Now, folks, let's make this personal. Some of you in this room, you're living in the act right now. You come to church... But you're opposing Jesus. Because you won't give Him the reins of your life. You won't give up your own lordship. You want to rule your life. And Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is Lord. He is Lord. So my plea to you today on the authority of the Scripture, don't oppose Him. Bow before Him and love Him. Bow before Him and adore Him. If you oppose Jesus Christ, you will lose. But bow before Him and adore Him. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe upon His name. Bow before Him. He's the King. Nothing will stop His advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, I want to thank You for uh, this chapter and uh, what it's meant to my own life. As I study Your Word and I think about how powerful You are, Lord, I'm convicted in my own heart of lack of prayer in believing You. Lord, we, we go through seasons where we're invigorated and we're, we're grabbing a hold of the horns of the altar and we're seeking Your faith. But God, I would pray that You would visit us with a passion to pray to You, our Father. God, would You do that with every single member of this church. That we would believe that prayer is our ultimate weapon. And that we can have total confidence in the God who controls all things. Who gets rid of tyrants. Who works in ways that we don't understand. Allowing someone like James to die, but Peter to live. Father, we don't understand all that, but we know you're in control. And you're the all wise Father. We know that James was immediately in your presence when he died. Which is better, according to your word. Father, I pray that you would Father, just rattle us. Shake us, Father, as a church. And may we think about the things of eternal value. Your purpose for your glory to resound in this world. And your one singular mission. That the gospel would go to the ends of the earth and that disciples would be made. God, convict us. in In our own personal lives, as we make decisions, as we live our lives out here on earth... God, would you help us be a praying people that we have confidence in you and that you're going to work? Lord, if there's someone in this building that's opposing you, God, would you break their will? Lord, would you help them be willing to bow a knee to you and trust you as Lord and Savior? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.